This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode two. My guest for this episode is Kristen Cobus Dumay. Kristen is the author of the new book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Through this book, Kristen chronicles how the ideals of white evangelicalism were formed as much by an idealized and valorized sense of so-called masculinity as it was by any theological commitment to God. By using this lens to trace the development of white evangelicalism, we see how white evangelical support for Trump is not an aberration or political compromise, but rather a culmination of a decades-long trend toward more and more militancy and hardline far-right stances, even within popular evangelical thought. This history goes back further than one expects, not just to John Wayne, but to turn-of-the-century figures like Teddy Roosevelt and the popular evangelist Billy Sunday. Reading Ms. Dumay's book was an unexpectedly emotional experience for me, and maybe for other men and women who grew up in white evangelicalism as well. You can find Jesus and John Wayne at your local bookstore and on Amazon, and you can help support the show by purchasing it using one of the links in the show notes. Now let's get to my conversation with Kristen Cobus Dumay. My guest today is Kristen Cobus Dumay, professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University and author of the new book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining me. Um, I have to be honest at the very top of this interview. Your book was unexpectedly a little difficult to read um, because it just really ended up bringing up a lot of sort of intensely personal things that I didn't realize when, because I could sort of see them in the lives of myself and the other men in my life. However, <laughs> uh, that, that might sort of inform some of the questions I, I ask as well as just the tenor of this interview. But I do want to start by really with the title of your book, which is Jesus and John Wayne. Um, it actually sort of accomplishes two things simultaneously, which is that it grounds your narrative and the historical roots that go back farther than a lot of people expect, mm -hmm. and also makes this sort of jarring comparison explicit. So let's start there. How does John Wayne, and even before that, people like Teddy Roosevelt, relate to the early development of evangelical masculine identity? Yeah, and I'd say it does even one more thing, which is, you know, pointing to the popular culture significance as part of my story and, and understanding evangelicalism itself as, as a culture. So uh, I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne at all. <laughs> and, um, but as I was looking at this vast evangelical literature on masculinity, I kept seeing John Wayne pop up as, you know, we all know John Wayne is the icon of Christian manhood. And, and so I started to take that seriously. And, uh, you know, first it was significant to me that uh, so many of their, the heroes that they, they look to as models of Christian manhood were not uh, Christian men themselves, or certainly not deeply religious men themselves. They had not been formed by Christian values, uh, traditionally speaking, such as the fruits of the spirit, right? They, to get this kind of rugged, tough, masculine, militant ideal, you kind of had to go outside of the, the faith. And, um, and so, you know, John Wayne is, is this perfect example. And he becomes the icon of conservative American manhood uh, in the 60s and 70s uh, in particular. 
at this critical moment in American cultural history, political history, and in, in the history of American evangelicalism. So he comes to symbolize kind of uh, a, an antidote to feminism, to the modern civil rights movement, to the anti-war movement. He stands for this nostalgic uh, America, Christian America, uh, with all his toughness. And, and so that's really what, what I saw influencing uh, contemporary evangelical understandings of, of quote-unquote biblical masculinity. Well, they weren't looking to the Bible very much, but to pop culture icons in this tradition. Mm. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit and how that and is a study in, in contrast as well as for as much as communities such as white evangelicalism talks about the biblical narrative or or biblical Christianity or using biblical as a sort of frame, how things like the life of John Wayne differ drastically from the life exhibited in the Jesus of the Gospels. Yeah. So, you know, from, and it's not just John Wayne, I'll, I'll throw that in, you know, uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from Braveheart it mm, certainly mm. rivals John Wayne in terms of, you know, the frequency with which uh, evangelicals writers, um, you're right. When, when evangelicals talk about themselves, they are very quick to self-identify as Bible-believing Christians. And when evangelical leaders and evangelical scholars talk about, you know, what's the essence of evangelicalism, they will point to uh, theological categories, a kind of theological rubric. The authority of the Bible is right up there. Uh, the atonement of Christ, conversionism, right? These kind of, you know, you check these boxes and then they, they'll say, okay, you're an evangelical. But I think that that really misses is the uh, the reality that for many evangelicals, I mean, we know that many evangelicals are just theologically illiterate. Frankly, um, surveys bear that out. Um, but evangelicalism is is a set of cultural values as much as anything. And um, so, I I really wanted to approach evangelicalism as a cultural movement and white evangelicalism in particular. So again, if you if you argue that evangelicalism is simply a kind of theological rubric, then you can count global quote-unquote evangelicals. Most Black Protestants in America get thrown into that bucket. Um, but in terms of lived experience, that's inaccurate. Right? We know that uh, the white evangelical tradition has developed historically and culturally and politically largely distinct from Black Protestantism in America. And so even when they're talking about the Bible, what they mean by different passages, which passages they even bother to, to look to, are really quite different. Uh, what they mean by Jesus is quite different. And many white evangelicals have transformed Jesus uh, into a kind of warrior, uh, a, a warrior Christ and a, a militant model. And so for me, I, I came to see for all their talk of, you know, being Bible believing and the authority of the Bible, uh, their understanding and encounter of the scriptures was very much shaped by these cultural ideals rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. So what, what about that and these cultural ideals? Your, your book is about masculinity in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, let's try to define that really. And, and what you mean when you appeal and you, you're discussing through your book what evangelical masculinity is and what they are trying to emulate and what they're trying to capture. And that, that what you, what you do throughout the book is you provide evidence for how that has shifted over time, but nonetheless, these same people, and this is the culture that I come from. So I do have that lived experience of knowing how this has mm -hmm. been presented to these communities uh, yeah. in a sort of insular way and how they speak while, when they're within those communities. But for a broader audience, yeah. what does evangelical masculinity, what is it aspiring to? And through the earlier parts of your book, what were they trying to, re what were they reacting to or what were they responding to within the culture 
So uh, first I'll say that, you know, I'm talking about evangelical masculinity, but a particular strain uh, in the the connection between evangelical masculinity and militarism. And that's, that's really the thread that I wanted to follow. Now, when I started, you know, really putting this book together and was shopping the proposal around to different editors, one editor, um, when we were talking about it, said, you know what you really have here, Kristen, is a new history of evangelicalism. And I really pushed back. I thought, you know, no, 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 this is, this is much more modest. I'm really just trying to tell the story of white evangelical masculinity and militarism and then see, you know, see where that gets us. And I ended up working with a different publisher and it was about two or three months later and I was really wrestling with a chapter early in the book and, and it suddenly dawned on me in that moment. I'm writing a new history of evangelicalism. <laughs> and um, so I eventually did uh, follow up with the editor and say, uh, yeah, sorry, you were kind of right. But, um, and he was very gracious. But uh, what, what I mean by that is uh, that when you start looking at masculinity, it's really one facet of this larger ideology, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's just one piece. And, and it's, it's intricately connected to Christian nationalism, um, right? To their um, cultural identity, um, to their politics, um, but it's just really kind of one angle that you can take, but a very important one. So uh, what, I, what I discovered in just, just following this trail of evangelical masculinity and kind of seeing how it emerged in uh, the 1960s and 1970s in particular, and how it helped shape this emerging coalescing evangelical identity. And, um, you know, right when we see the rise of the religious right and evangelicals not becoming political for the first time, but the kind of partisan political mobilization that we recognize today, Mm -hmm. um, right? At that point, they cared deeply about, as they put it, gender difference. Uh, That was just this fundamental truth to be a Christian meant defending gender difference. So for men, that looked like leadership, right? patriarchal leadership. And what was so interesting to me was they weren't just talking about leadership in the family, although that was very important. All of their books, um, sermons, right? They would very quickly make the leap to we need strong men in the family to lead the family and to lead the church and to defend the nation against communism against all of these evil external threats. And so Mm -hmm. family and nation were intimately connected and they always have been. So part of what this is doing is is simply, you know, refusing to separate family values evangelicalism as something kind of private, personal, and uh, the political engagement of evangelicals, not just on family values issues. Um, Because I think in the end, you know, gender is so personal. And uh, it affects people in their day-to-day lives. And so many evangelicals spend a lot of time thinking about it. Women, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian woman? You have women's Bible studies, um, all kinds of literature. And, and this really does form people and it shapes their political identities and their political allegiances. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the thing that was that was very interesting in regards to your book is how early that seems to have formed. And one of the things that I think a lot of people, even that come from evangelicalism, whether it's been in the last 30 to 50 years, the general understanding or the sort of accepted myth is that this that this movement uh, appeared almost ex nihilo after Roe v. Wade, you know, that all of a sudden this movement was birthed in response to the injustice of abortion access and abortion becoming legal. That is demonstrated, demonstrably not the case, um, based on the historical record as indicated in your book and, and, and many others. But to me, it's, it's such an interesting thing to, to read a book like yours and, and try to understand why the 50s and 60s and 70s were such a critical time for these understandings. Like one historian, uh, Stephanie Kuntz, who's written about like the history of marriage, posits that that moment in the 50s of men being the primary breadwinner and all of those things was essentially a historical aberration. It's not, um, it wasn't the case in the majority of the history in Western Europe uh, and in most other parts of the world. But evangelicals sort of sought to make that model like immutable and eternal. Um, Was it 
just because these people in the 50s and 60s felt the political and social power of white men beginning to wane? Yeah, well, first I would say, I mean, it, it's absolutely critical just to understand that, yes, the kind of 50s gender roles, which um, ha have been branded traditional, uh, were an aberration. And that as a historian, you can just see so much change over time. You know, if you uh, even just in American history, which is a, a relatively brief swath of history generally, that um, you see that ideas of gender and uh, labor and economics that just are, are, are um, very much in flux in uh, throughout history. And so I think that I mean one of the things that a historical study of gender does quite simply is it demonstrates that things have not always been the way they are now. And for evangelicals in particular, that can be really startling because evangelicals tend to talk about gender in very static categories that, you know, things traditional, things have always been this way. Um, this is, you know, God ordained gender roles when, mm -hmm. once, you know, those are always in fact, very, very historically and culturally contingent. Um, but evangelicals have been very good at, you know, kind of um, um, uh, holding up this largely mythical ideal, which is loosely based on a kind of mythical understanding of a uh, white middle-class Victorian past. And this, this little moment in the, in the 1950s where, where the male breadwinner was a viable model in large part frankly, because of, uh, you know, federal government spending, mm -hmm. uh, the GI Bill and, um, you know, this, this post-war economic boom, it worked for a very short time. Um, so then the problem is when you kind of reify that as traditional God-given gender roles, when the economic underpinnings of that begin to shift, as they certainly do by the 1970s, uh, then, you know, where does that leave you if you've, if you've already dictated that that is, you know, God-ordained? Not to mention the fact that those um, gender arrangements were only ever available to a very small subset of the American population and, you know, uh, and only, frankly, to to white people of of certain means. Um, so, so yeah, history can just show how this is um, this is very contingent, and I think that's the first important step for evangelicals to understand that you know to ask what does it mean to be a faithful man, faithful woman, um, is going to change in in light of the uh, the changes in in history. Mm, right. Absolutely. What your book really uh, highlights is the different male leaders that that really stewarded or guided or shaped. Those might be <laughs> benevolent terms for the sorts of impacts that they've had that have been largely negative and deleterious for a lot of society. I'd, I'd like to talk about some of them in particular and how they have helped to shape this part of white evangelicalism. Um, and I want to start with Billy Graham. His influence starts very early in sort of mid the mid-century period uh, and then continues up until very recently. Uh, he just recently passed within the last few years and his, his son, um, for better or worse, has taken up his mantle um, in, in a much more partisan way than his, uh, than his, than his father ever did or at least that he tried to signal on a more public scale. So Billy Graham, how did, how did his presentation of being a Christian man influence the Christian leaders that came after him? Yeah, and this is, you know, for those of us, um, I'll call us younger, uh, <laughs> it's all relative, <laughs> right. um, you know, who have more of a, a memory of Graham in, in his waning years. I think there are some surprises in this book because we tend to think of Graham as this grandfatherly type, really quite mellow, not all that political, really, you know, the pastor to the presidents, regardless of party, and, and just as this kind of figure of American Christianity. But if you go back in time, the 40s, 50s, 60s. He's a firebrand. He's very, very political. And um, I mean, and very much grasping for power, um, political power. And, uh, you know, 
and now I better say this, you know, even as he was, you know, really trying to spread, you know, the gospel as he understood it, he, this wasn't just his evangelism was not just a cover for his political, um, you know, quest for power, but they went hand in hand. And what, what struck me going back is, um, you know, how one of his biographers has pointed this out that he, uh, it's hard to find a newspaper account of Graham for, you know, two or three decades that doesn't talk about his masculine appearance and his square jaw and his steely blue eyes. And, you know, that's not the gram that we tend to think of today in our memory. Uh, but he really was this model of, of rugged masculinity. And that was important to him. And it was important to evangelicals who in the post-war era were really trying to reclaim what they perceived as kind of lost social standing, um, that they, they felt that they had been marginalized. And um, so when they come together in the 1940s to form the National Association of Evangelicals, they have very clear plans to reclaim that power and to, to um, you know, move into the media, into education, into um, politics, you know, to really claim America again um, for God. And they believe that, you know, that their Christianity was the truest form of Christianity. And so it was really up to them to um, re-Christianize America and to keep America strong. And they, they felt this kind of huge burden. And, and uh, Billy Graham was right at the center of that. And so the fact that he was this masculine man, that he could hold his own, that he was very quickly a celebrity, um, just completely worked into their plans in terms of making evangelicalism not just respectable again, but really quite powerful again. And what you touched on there was that that during this period back in the back when the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, was created, was that there was an intent to move into things like media and education and politics. Yeah. Each of those is very important in sort of how modern evangelicalism was formed. And I'd like to to try um, and tackle those in different ways. With regard to media, what role did the development of alternative media ecosystems play in propagating these views of evangelical masculinity? In like the 1920s, following things like the Scopes trial, you had the development and the establishment of certain colleges like, like my alma mater, Indiana Wesleyan, who was established in 1920. Um, then eventually you have things like publishing houses, and then in the 80s through the 2000s, then entire places like the Christian bookstore I worked worked for in high school, you know, uh, yes. that continued to have this influence of, of allowing someone to exist within a particular type of information sphere. Um, we talk about filters, we talk about all those things now uh, around media environments. Um, but but what, did, what did that role play in continuing the sorts of things that Billy Graham started. Uh, he was a mass media maven in a lot yeah. of ways. He, yeah, he really did that very successfully. Uh, how did they, how did the people that followed in his footsteps build upon that? I mean, this was hugely important. It really can't be underestimated how important uh, the Christian media empire, Christian publishing is to the story that I tell and and frankly to, you know, the last half century of American evangelicalism, or I guess we're more than a half century away from that now. Um, and uh, I mean, in so many ways, one thing, you know, a lot of conservative Christians were really preaching this us versus them mentality. And you really can't trust people outside our circles. You can't trust media sources outside of our circles. And I mean, you can, you can trace that through kind of presuppositionalism if you want to get theological and technical, um, but just more, more generally, the idea that, you know, we hold God's truth and therefore, you know, why would you go outside of our circles? Because they don't have access to the, to the truth that we have. And so there's a lot of control on the messaging. And then you just have this like, kind of explosion of popular culture in the post-war era and um, in Christian publishing in particular. And here I learned a lot from historian Daniel Silliman and, and, and I, um, I use his work in Jesus and John Wayne, and he has demonstrated how uh, the the rise of um, the CBA, Christian Booksellers Association, is actually really critical 
because earlier in the century, a lot of uh, Christian publishing was distributed through denominations and through, you know, that, that was the distribution um, network. And uh, then by mid-century with the CBA, you have um, the ability to market your Christian publishing across denominations and outside of denominations. And since evangelicalism was never um, bounded by denominations anyway, uh, this is really critical. But the problem then was that, you know, whereas earlier in the century, you could have some very kind of specific um, doctrinal writings and, you know, specific to the denominations that they were intended to reach. Um, you'll get very quickly into trouble if you try to do that across kind of theological differences, um, you know, in terms of premillennialism, postmillennialism, or this view of baptism or that view of baptism, you can get into trouble. So to have the widest appeal, the market was really for um, works that avoided those particulars because they would have a, a niche market and instead focus on things like Christian living gender, right? Uh, how to be a Christian parent, how to be a Christian woman, how to be a Christian man. And these are going to have this broad appeal. And um, that really starts to define not just the evangelical market, um, but to define really what evangelicalism means to many evangelicals themselves. So they're going to be listening to Dobson's focus on the family. They're going to be reading books on raising your children and and really identifying around this kind of um, Christian living literature more than specific doctrines, specific theology. And so the market itself and distribution methods end up kind of changing um, evangelicalism itself. And you talked about Christian bookstores and, you know, hugely important in terms of uh, I used to go into Christian bookstores. Sadly, most of them have have closed um, due to broader economic shifts. But just to kind of take the pulse of the evangelical world, what am I seeing on the shelves? What's not on these shelves? And um, I, I think for for many evangelicals, that popular culture has been incredibly formative to what's properly Christian and what is secular, what is outside of kind of this truth. After the 2008 recession, I went uh, at one point. I had a like a part-time job at uh, on Moody Bible Col Bible Institute's Lifeway Bookstore, uh, which was run by Lifeway. Uh, and I at one point was tasked with removing Rob Bell's books after he published Loved Wins. Yeah. Um, so, exactly. Uh, in a broader conversation about if we were talking about cancel culture, we could certainly bring up how evangelicals have employed that for a very long time. Um, within those sorts of frameworks, but that is <laughs> no, we could, a... and, and actually we probably <laughs> should. But this is this is really what what I was grappling with, you know. So what is evangelicalism? And it's 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 a consumer culture in many ways. It's a culture formed, you know, through this consumer culture. And you know, now we we have this newfangled word cancel culture. Uh, you know, I, I just talk about you know boundaries. Who gets to define those boundaries? And it's more complicated if you don't have a kind of institutional hierarchy, um, but no less powerful. In fact, I would say even more powerful. So exactly who whose books are distributed, whose books are on the on the shelves and which ones are not, and what factors, where are the lines that you, you cross? Um, and what I, what I discovered is you can be very racist and not be defined outside of respectable evangelicalism. Your books are still going to be carried. Um, but if you cross the line on LGBTQ, obviously, right, you're going to be on the outs. And so I became fascinated in kind of trying to map out this evangelicalism through networks, alliances, um, and then also understand power. Who has the power to define who's in and who's out and then to, to, to carry that out? And, and that, was, that was just a fascinating part of the project for me. What are some examples of that? In particular, the ways in which someone can voice racist opinions but cannot voice opinions that are supportive or affirming of queer people, of LGBTQ yeah. people. What are some examples of that within the evangelical literature? 
So if you look at homeschool literature, if you look at um, uh, you know works by people like Doug Wilson, for example, you can see some uh, really uh, uh, racist interpretations of the Civil War. Um, slavery was this wonderful system and, and Black people were very happy um, in their enslaved status and it was, it was all very tranquil um, and orderly. And, um, you know, that if you look at, um, at, at homeschool history teachings, for example, um, this, is, this is a very common motif. And um, Wilson has written a couple of books that suggest as much as well. And, and then you can say, okay, is this fringe? We're talking homeschool. We're talking, you know, Doug Wilson, a particularly cantankerous figure. Um, but then what I do in the book is I demonstrate how these uh, ideas and these figures become quite mainstream mm-hmm. um, as homeschool becomes much more popular and, um, and the homeschool movement begins to influence um, uh, outside of homeschool circles. Um, but somebody like Doug Wilson, you have John Piper coming out and vouching for him and inviting him into his orbit of influence and saying, oh, I promise you, you know, I know from the bottom of my heart that Doug Wilson is not a racist, you know? And so, so one of the things, another of the things that I really worked was to try to figure out, you know, what is actually fringe here within white evangelicalism and what is mainstream and what is the relationship between the two? Because it's it's tempting, I think, for quote unquote respectable evangelicals to um, very quickly separate themselves out. And anybody who says something that's offensive or deeply problematic, you just say, oh, you know, that's that's not who we are. When in fact, you can see that mainstream evangelicalism and evangelicalisms have been, evangelical leaders have been deeply complicit in um, things that, that we might want to claim are actually fringe. Right, absolutely. And we've definitely seen that in the last, few years of the Trump administration and the protestations that people have around uh, instead of no true Scotsman, it's no true evangelical type arguments, whether it's um, based on something, um, you know, arcane or only known to people who've done readings about the Bevington quadrilateral or something else, you know, um, to whatever it might be. it's, It's very different than the cultural evangelicalism, which you are primarily investigating um through your book yeah there's there's so much to go into there and i think we'll i think we'll get there um what i do want to touch touch on you you mentioned homeschool and i think that brings to mind the way in which homeschool ties and a lot of the leaders tie these beliefs about quote traditional or biblical gender roles to both family dynamics including spouse relationships as well as parenting dynamics to both family and education. So what were the ways in which these ideas of uh, evangelical masculinity, which we may have mentioned the term once so far, but really are couched in patriarchal ideas? Um, Let's do a little bit of definition of terms, because I think that's helpful for this, this type of audience who may have some exposure to this, but may also not. Um, so let's try to define some terms as we go. But how do those, how, how does the homeschool leaders like Bill Gothard and, and James Dobson, who crosses into a lot of media and politics, mm-hmm. how do those, those figures start to develop the groundwork in the 70s for what follows later. Yeah, so um, this kind of patriarchy, essentially the the idea of of male leadership or male headship, they'll say, yeah, so that the man is the head of the family. Um, and, you know, drawing on particular biblical passages and particular interpretations of those passages. Uh, but it's not just about kind of ultimate authority. There's a whole set of values that go along with this for men and for women in the kind of more... Um, contemporary iteration of this is complementarianism, which again, Mm -hmm. it's all about gender difference. And um, conservative evangelicals will say that um, complementarianism is not about power differentials, that um, it's a kind of separate but equal kind of thing where yes, men are leaders, but women are equally as valuable, um, but they um, just have different roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what that looks like for women is submission, submission to male authority. 
Um, but it also usually means, uh, you know, a very uh, feminine role as they define it. It's this hyper femininity and emphasis on beauty and emphasis on um, being um, a real support to your husband, um, again, through submitting to his leadership, which builds him up as a masculine leader, and also sexually, um, being sexually submissive and sexually responsive and alluring to a man because God made man with pretty intense sex drives because he filled them with testosterone. And so it really is the wife's obligation to meet all of those needs. Otherwise, bad things will happen. And if bad things happen, it's clearly the wife's fault for not having met those needs. So there's this kind of whole package of values that go along along with uh, gender difference and ideas of masculine leadership and female submission. And uh, yes, you know, kind of how that takes shape in the 1970s um, with people like Gothard and Gothard would be really quite extreme, uh, but he really stresses the importance of authority of um, properly ordered authority. And that is essential to the church, is essential to the social order. And he's looking around um, in the in the 60s and 70s and, you know, the real problem to him is, is a breakdown of authority. And for him, that authority is very, very clear. Uh, you know, it's God, pastor, father, wife and children. Uh, and and so um, that's the authority structure that he will maintain. And he also has employer-employee is part of this as well. So it fits nice with kind of free market capitalism and, and mm -hmm. anti-communism and all these kinds of things. Um, it, it comes together, but it's all about authority. And that authority was extreme, unquestioned, you know, so, so a wife needed to, um, you know, ask her husband's permission for what groceries to get, um, how she should cut her hair, those sorts of things. So very extreme authoritarianism in the home and in society. And of course, white Christian men were at the top um, beneath God. Uh, so, uh, and as representatives of God's authority. Now, again, that sounds quite horrific and extreme. And it, initially I was going to keep Gothard out of this book because again, I thought, nope, fringe guy. And so many people that I talked to who have um, uh, come through white evangelicalism in one way or another, said, no, you have to look at Gothard. His influence was so significant, but beneath the surface. And it's true. So many people I talked to, their parents were influenced by Gothard's teachings. Mm -hmm. Then you look at somebody like James Dobson, and he is saying very similar things. Dare to discipline. It's all about asserting authority and asserting authority in the face of the disruption of the 1960s of protesters, of your anti-war activists. And so this asserting authority in the home and it's a gendered authority, hierarchical authority is absolutely critical for the sake of the nation. Again, um, and when it really came down to it, I did not I mean, the, the difference is in degrees, not really in substance between somebody like Gothard and somebody like Dobson. Mm -hmm. And Dobson emerges as someone that bridges the divide between these private matters of yeah. family and the more political aspirations of people within that becomes the religious right, that becomes the moral majority Within that period, when when Dobson and Gothard are beginning to to publish, they start to build political alliances as they as their stars rise, whether that's through the media or otherwise. Is it wrong to say that this is when things start to become more uh, militaristic and more seeking basically dominance and power within the political and social sphere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, the 70s are our critical period, um, the 60s, late 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will point to Roe v. Wade and evangelicals themselves will, and it did play a role. Um, but I just kept being struck by how profound an influence the Vietnam War was mm -hmm. in, in um, kind of uh, inflaming this militancy and uh, separating evangelicals out from most other Americans and uniting them with other, with secular conservatives, frankly. And I just think that's such a critical moment. And uh, what was striking in these books on evangelical masculinity that I was reading um, well through the 1990s, 
Vietnam remained a touchstone. Like the most popular books in the 1990s opened with scenes from Vietnam and, you know, soldiers in Vietnam. And this was like the moment in American history when, when things started to unravel. And this is when then white evangelicals really start to embrace an identity that's clearly in opposition to many other uh, Americans, to liberals, to anti-war activists, or even to Americans who are just ambivalent about the war. Uh, You know, we had told ourselves these myths of, you know, we fight good wars and, and we have, you know, American power and we win wars. And, and Vietnam started to unravel those myths. But with the white evangelical community, they doubled down on those. And Billy Graham is right at the heart of this, right? And, um, and they start to define patriotism as being pro-war, um, pro-American power. And they link that very tightly in the Cold War context to Christian power and to their own power. And again, when they see the rest of the country really starting to express doubts for obvious reasons, um, that's when they think that they have this, they are God's chosen people. They are the faithful remnant. And it is up to them to kind of well, make America great again, right? And to keep mm-hmm. America going. And so, yeah, I think that, I think the seventies are really important. Um, Vietnam is critical. Uh, the civil rights movement is is playing a role here as well, particularly for Southern evangelicals. Um, so you can look at at things like, you know, Randy Balmer has, has, has written on the role of, you know, private schools and segregation academies and helping to mobilize the religious right. And they will use family values language. I'm talking about you know, the rights of parents, what we know that really means fathers, to make decisions for their kids without the interference of the federal government. Well, in that time and place, we're talking about um, anti, uh, or anti-integrationism. And so, uh, yeah, all of these factors come together in the 1960s and 1970s and do really um, define, uh, define the cultural and political identity of evangelicals and they are able to help shape the Republican party because this is right when we have the party realignments taking place. Um, and, and it's not just that Republicans kind of shift to this, this conservatism that we recognize today and then evangelicals find them, but evangelicals are there on the ground floor making this happen as well. It's in, it's within that period within the seventies the and eighties and everything that spins out of that, that evangelicals move very strongly to identify with, the Republican party and pin all of their hopes on this party as the one that will be the banner holders for, for their concerns. What was also striking and what I didn't, what I didn't really expect when I was reading your book was the elements in regards to the promise keepers um, in the eighties and, and then how that sort of fed into a variety of different things within the nineties. Cause each one of these, these phases builds one upon the other. So one of the things that was, that was popular then was this idea of the tender warrior, this idea of of men as people that were very testosterone laden and aggressive. And uh, somehow that has something to do with Jesus. Um, This homeless Palestinian that gave away free healthcare. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, like that was that sort of was a precursor to what I in the late 90s experienced as like uh, John Eldridge's book, which you do also talk about Wild at Heart and Sacred Romance was his other book Mm -hmm. that was also very popular uh, and really served to try to romanticize um, this relationship of being very defined, very particularly male. But then how that was defined was very much in relation to how women and other people related to you. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a long preamble here because I got sidetracked by by all that prognostication and everything. Sorry about that. Nonetheless, what did that enable and how did that begin to promise keepers and and the people that that came from trying to use this warrior language mm-hmm. affect the way men understood themselves? 
Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, in the 1990s, that's when the evangelical men's movement really kind of um, came into the, uh, the uh, attracted national attention, right? The the march in Washington and you have, um, you know, feminists saying this is a really bad thing. This is, uh, you know, we need to fight this. And these are sexist and misogynists. And, and um, if you look at the Promise Keepers movement, it's actually... Um, it, there's no one message. It's it's self-contradictory. It's this interesting moment because the Cold War has come to an end, right? And so in the early 90s, there's a lot of, I mean, the word that I came across all the time was confusion. What does it mean to be a man in this moment? It seemed like, you know, feminism to them at least seemed like it, it was here to stay. Um, broader economic changes. Women are in the workplace. That's not going to change. The old like super sexist misogyny out of style. Um, you know, you can't do that. So, so there was a real sense uh, among evangelical men too, that we need to, we can't kind of revive the old macho. Um, masculinity. We need something new. And it was very conflicted. There are actually some rather egalitarian representations of gender within promise keepers. And there are very reactionary ones. And they're kind of held together by this idea of soft patriarchy. <laughs> Just be nice about it. And um, this the tender warrior. So you gotta, you gotta fight, but you also can be tender. And, and, and I mean, this kind of makes no sense, but it's a way that they were able to hold together these tensions. What I see happening by the end of the 1990s is a real backlash against this tenderness. And, and you, you, you probably remember that too, you know, um, the, the emotional intensity of these promise keepers rallies uh, initially was a sign of God's presence. And then within a couple of years, it was kind of an embarrassment and something that, you know, real men wanted to keep far away from. And so you kind of see this by the late 90s, 97, 99, 2001, it really it comes into fruition a return to the testosterone because, you know, to, to use one of their quotes, in the trenches, you don't want tenderness. And so we already have that backlash in full swing. Um, so we have in 2001, um, uh, James Dobson's bringing up boys, you know, back to, you got to train them up to be rough and tough. Boys will be boys. Uh, you have wild at heart, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, every man needs a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. And you have Doug Wilson's Future Men. And all of those books are on the shelves of Christian bookstores when 9-11 happens. And that just kicks this into high gear because then it's obvious to everyone within evangelicalism and beyond that what America needed in that moment wasn't the soft masculinity, wasn't the feminist kind of, you know, um, stripping away of the toughness, the ruggedness of American men. What we needed were, was, you know, John Wayne riding across the plains, as they say, uh, ready to fight our enemies. And so you, you see that happening within evangelical circles um, before 9-11, but that just really amps it up. And that's when we get into the, the Mark Driscoll chapter of um, this really um, blaze, uh, blatantly, um, and brazenly militant masculinity that, that is unapologetically misogynistic, hypersexual, and incredibly disturbing uh, if you actually pay attention to it. Yeah, to give context to that, he was the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, um, not the Mars Hill Church that Rob Bell yeah. was a part of in uh, Michigan. And he was part of the New Calvinists or the new Young Restless and Reformed yes. uh, movement that really tried to instill this in-your-face bro Christianity mm -hmm. that was um, unapologetically offensive um, in a lot of ways. And he would often do things like he had a vision of some woman having an affair, like in explicit detail from the, from the pulpit um, and would be very, very vulgar. And w what else about him is emblematic of that 2000s era that runs before Ob Obama's Tenure. And a lot of this can be tied to different administrations and the ways in which uh, evangelicals respond to national politics in general. Mm -hmm. But how did this really start to inform men's, men's own understanding of, of themselves and, and manliness uh, mm -hmm. as an evangelical in that era? 
Yeah. I mean, so for the, the, the first thing to, to recognize is Driscoll with all of his extremes. And by this point in the book, you see he is standing in a long line of, you know, the sort of teaching. Yes, he takes it a bit to, to an extreme, but the patterns are already set. Uh, this, this rugged, um, even crass masculinity and um, especially the, um, the need for women to submit to masculine authority and to sexually please their husbands uh, with, you know, whatever their needs. And, uh, and so this, this cross sexuality is, is shocking if you don't know that history. Uh, but but it was it was very uh, it was widespread, in part because like you say, Driscoll really mastered kind of the internet at an early stage, and he became really influential. Um, not just his ideas, his teachings on masculinity and and his militarism, but also simply because he was succeeding, and a lot of the evangelical pastors wanted to emulate that success and to grow churches and grow networks, and they wanted in on it. And so he had, he was on on this kind of pedestal of this guy knows how to do it. So this militant masculinity was linked to his uh, uh, evangelistic success and just his his. Um, his ability to really establish this religious empire um, relatively quickly. And so um, in terms of how men experience this, as I researched this book and as I talked to lots of, of men, uh, even, even men who wouldn't necessarily articulate, articulate it in this way, I started to realize that you know, the vast majority of Christian men can't live up to this ideal. And at any given point in time, they weren't living up to this ideal. You know, they might for a weekend go on a wild at heart retreat and pretend to climb a mountain, but, you know, then they're back wearing their khakis and their polo shirts and, you know, they're sitting in a Bible study for goodness sake, uh, which isn't to say that they didn't embrace this aspirationally. And I, and I think what you have then is a lot of men feeling if they couldn't live up to this impossible ideal, that they were um, somehow kind of second-class Christians and, um, and second-class men, and that they should step out of the way and let the alpha males really take charge as the alpha males like Driscoll were telling them to do. And, and so, so, you know, it, it's not that every man became this, this wild man, but that was kind of the ideal held up that the true Christian man is going to look like this. And if you're falling short, well, you should be a follower then of this guy and try to, you know, try to toughen yourself up as much as possible. And so many of the men that I talked to really ended up feeling either empowered by this because, um, you know, they'd read something like Aldridge or they'd listen to Driscoll and they'd be, you know, uh, there's a quote in the book where it's like, you know, I was a nobody. I didn't have any particular talents. I was, you know, as a, as a young white Christian guy, but I, I would listen to this and I would, I would feel empowered because I would feel like he's telling me that, you know, I'm a leader and I'm a man and I can take charge. And it was empowering in that moment for many others. It was incredibly disempowering and discouraging because mm -hmm. they knew they weren't measuring up. Um, but in some ways it was easier to kind of support this by, um, uh, you know, supporting the ideology by supporting the leaders who seemed to embody this better than they did. And, and the, the books will tell them to do this, you know, you can fight this battle and maybe for you, it looks like opening up your wallet and writing a check to the family research council, and you can be part of this battle, you know? And so there right. are many ways to participate in this. Mm -hmm. Some men ended up walking away entirely because they couldn't measure up and others found ways to participate in this larger battle. Mm -hmm. That's that's incredibly telling, right? Because the people that are that may have been empowered or may have found a way to reconcile the things that made them uncomfortable, it still was a system in which their own empowerment was built upon the diminish the yeah, diminishing others, absolutely. people that are not white men, um, because there is absolutely a racial aspect to all of this, um, and that's why your book is specific in talking about white evangelicals and. Um, you do talk about how men who are not white did not have the same similar experience. And then also earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that this is very distinct from black Protestantism mm -hmm. and, and other aspects of American Christianity. I certainly remember just, again, adding 
um, some personal flair to this. Like I remember my father going to things like Promise Keepers and then having the, having that literature around. And then later for me, it was things like Wild Out Hearts and Mark Driscoll. But I personally sort of chafed at, chafed at that. And it was largely because even though um, to tie back to something you talked about before about how these the media could reach across denominations. My family attended uh, United Methodist Church. Um, so the first pastors I knew were women, which is at odds with most uh, conservative white evangelicalism. Um, but evangelical teachings were able to reach me right there uh, and brought me into a more conservative place um, despite that. I, I do want to try to bring the conversation closer to where we are now in 2020. Uh, we're talking in early August, 2020 now. And in the 2000s, entering into the Obama administration, there was always a sense of grievance and a sense of feeling under attack and embattled that evangelicals have always used to their political advantage to uh, vilify and otherize people that are not like them in the political sphere. And that's that accelerates uh, during the Obama era and leads to a lot of the support for Trump. There's a, there's a sort of a study of contrast that happens there because within, within the faith organization, faith communities there in the 2010s begins to be a bit of a, a reckoning things like the church Two movement, very specific investigations into abuse a lot of the leaders of these very formative leaders, like like Gothard, like Swaggart, like so many others, their own histories of abuse and of sexual abuse come to light. And yet what we see, and I think the thing that, that binds, one of the things that binds evangelical, white evangelicalism and Trumpism together is sort of this appeal to authority without accountability and escaping accountability, even when it doesn't meet its own standards. Even though people that know white evangelicalism may not be surprised by the fact that a lot of these leaders embraced this faux strongman in Trump, what can we learn from, from the ways in which these faith communities still sort of jockey for uh, and struggle inherently with trying to hold these people that have guided their culture for decades accountable for things that they would condemn others for. So I I had initially um, started to delve into this research more than 15 years ago, and then I I set it aside for a couple of reasons. And, but I, I, I kept track of, of the guys who are promoting this very militant masculinity. And what I observed was one after another became implicated in sexual abuse scandals, either directly or indirectly by covering up um, mm-hmm. what their friends were doing. And, and so, so I, I tracked this for a long time. And to me, it, it, things clicked in the week after the Access Hollywood tape release, where, you know, with uh, when Trump is on video, you know, admitting to assaulting women, speaking in very cross ways, uh, and evangelicals slightly waver for a few days, and then all of those who are supporting him are back um, supporting him again within a week or two. And that's when I realized, you know, we have seen this before. We have seen this over and over again in evangelical churches, organizations, uh, that the the perpetrators are very quickly forgiven. Uh, the allegations are dismissed or outright denied, and victims are the ones who are blamed. And and and, and when that clicked for me, um, it, it, things started to make sense. And. And yeah, Trump was this authoritarian leader. Um, he used the language very explicitly. I will protect Christianity. I will protect you. You know, so he was this strong man, very much in keeping with this model of quote unquote Christian manhood, this very militant model of defensive, protective, aggressive masculinity that where the ends would justify the means. And um, once you see it through that lens, then we don't really need to be talking about, you know, this betrayal of evangelical values. That kind of language suggests that we, we 
don't really understand what those values ultimately were. If we just accept mm -hmm. at face value, family values, and then interpret them in, in a way that what we think, you know, they might mean or moral values. But we have to understand that for decades, family values, evangelicalism has always involved really at its core, white patriarchal power and the militant assertion of that power when needed. And as soon as you locate that at the heart of family values, evangelicalism, then we're not talking about a betrayal anymore when it comes to Trump. Mm. Yes, that's very astute and dead on. And it, and it makes the, the contradiction of things, the seeming contradiction of things make more sense. That is one thing that I think a lot of people do struggle with as they come up in these, these faith communities, as they decide whether to bring up their own families or to continue to participate in them themselves. One of the things that can often be at the heart of that sort of very difficult personal, what a lot of people call deconstruction. Um, that's a very popular term for this type of experience as they're sort of deconstructing and coming to terms with, with what they've been taught and whether they want to continue it on their own. One of the things they might see is the way in which men treat women, um, the way in which male power is sanctified and given a free pass for all manner of abuse. Where do you see that conversation going? And uh, do you see these same leaders continuing to cling to their authority for as long as they can? Or do you, do you see other signals of people continuing to wrestle with this yeah. in 2020 and beyond? It's it's so hard to predict the future, but I can I can say what I'm seeing right now, and uh, I've been surprised at the reception of this book, even in just the first six weeks since it released. Um, how many letters I've received? Amazing, poignant letters from evangelicals, former evangelicals, um, who who have lived this life, have either extricated themselves or at the point of saying, this is not what, what, what I want, right? This is, this is not what I meant. And I mean, one person said too, I, I bumped into a lot of these trees. I just never saw the forest until now. Right. And, and I want no part of this. And so there's a lot of deconstruction that is ongoing that needs to continue. Um, but the power structures are real. And I think it, uh, we should not ignore that. That's an immense amount of power has gone into constructing this edifice, into creating those boundaries and enforcing those boundaries. And that extricating yourself is not just a personal kind of deconstructive process, but you're going to bump again, up against those power structures. You're going to have very strained relationships. Um, and, and what I've been struck by is just how many people have been um, ill at ease with what they see in their own churches, in their own families, in their own communities, and have not dared to speak out. Uh, there is a lot of fear out there um, that evangelicals in powerful places, in organizations, institutions, um, do not feel that they can speak out honestly and openly at risk of losing their job, um, alienating family, and um, and I, I just can't even say how many people have shared those fears with me. And so um, in terms of what this moment demands, um, well, I'd say the first thing that if you find yourself in that position, you should know you're not alone, right? So many people are feeling this. Um, as a historian, then I'll also say, and and I'll just drop this here, my outside field in graduate school was 20th century Germany with a focus on um, Holocaust studies. And uh, so, and my real interest was on the, the German Christian movement during thirties um, and forties. And so, you know, for all of the reasons to keep quiet and there are many, and I think that has silenced many, many people uh, in recent years or even recent decades um, to really weigh what, what are the actual risks here? Are they discomfort? Are they, you know, strained relationships um, for you personally? And what are the implications of maintaining that silence uh, outside of your own experience for others, um, for people who have been othered by this movement, even 
for the sake of American democracy at this point. And um, so I hope that people can can be emboldened to start speaking out um, if they don't find that they're in agreement with the, this ideology, um, this belief system. And I think if more and more people start to do that, um, I, I'm really interested to see where, where things end up a few years from now. Yeah, and I think your book does that in such a way that it's very central to a lot of people's concerns, a lot of people's, it frames things in, in, a, in a way that, that's absolutely necessary. There's a lot of literature that, and a lot of um, attention given to the, the abuse that women and other people in, uh, not in power in white evangelicalism have been abused um, and have been mistreated for, for decades. What I think your book does phenomenally well is illustrate the way in which the myth of white evangelical masculinity is so distant from, honestly, like I don't usually talk in such sort of religious terms, but but even even this, the historical Jesus, even Jesus um, as presented in the Gospels is someone who says words like the meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, who in things like uh, even, you know, an alpha male like Paul says that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be aspired for Um, and who elevated women through much of through much of his ministry. Um, He got a little sassy with a couple (laughs) of women and that's not great, Um, uh, you know, but but he also spoke the longest theological conversation he has is with, with the woman at the well. And seeing that study in contrast is really important. And I, the thing that really struck me too, even seeing the ways in which people like my elders, like like white boomer men, were subject to a lot of this, these same these same things that, that even they may not be aware that these massive uh, intentional efforts to influence the way they understand their religion and the way they understand their gender. Um, two key part, formative parts of your identity um, were shaped by people with ulterior motives. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's no small feat. And I'm glad that you put this book out there. I'm glad that it's being published when it is. And uh, I want to thank you for, for, your, for writing the book and for taking some time to have this really broad conversation with me that just touches on so many aspects of how uh, white evangelical Christianity was formed and what its goals and efforts have, have been in the service of uh, over the past several decades. Where can people find the book? Um, where where can they find you online? Um, plug away anything that, that you need to. Sure. <laughs> the book it should be available at your local bookstore. And this is a really, really important time to support your local bookstore. So Absolutely. Um, I would I would send you there. It's it's available pretty much everywhere. Books are sold or can be ordered very quickly. Um, and in terms of finding me, I'm on Twitter at KK Dumay. And that's D-U-M-E-Z. It doesn't... Um, strange name. Uh, also Facebook, I have an author page, Kristen Cobus Dume, and I'm, I'm, I'm very present on social media. And I have a website, kristendumay.com, where all of my writings uh, are posted too. So I'm pretty much out there. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for talking with me today about your work. And I hope people seek it out because um, it's very important. Thank you very much for joining oh, me today. Thank you so much. Okay, that'll do it for this week's episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave Lefevre and Jake Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. You can also support the show by purchasing Kristen's book from the link in the show notes and by signing up for a paid subscription to my newsletter, The Post Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Talk to you soon.